0: Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. Have we um, lost Robert? No, Sorry. you haven't
1: lost us. We're still here.
0: Oh, I just the image is gone on my, my end, so uh, I'm going to carry on like I can still see you. Right. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey, plus I am honoured to say Robert Fripp and Toya Wilcox. Hello, all.
2: Hello, Hello. how are you?
0: Now, where to begin? In alphabetical order, Robert Fripp is the visionary founder of Prog Rock behemoths King Crimson and a producer and collaborator with, well, pretty much everyone. Brian Eno, David Bowie, Peter Gabriel, Daryl Hall, David Sylvian. the list goes on. Toya Wilcox, the perfect English pop star for the past 40 plus years with 20 albums and eight top 40 singles to her name. Toya has also appeared in over 40 stage plays, including work at the National Theatre and the Royal Court. She's starred in 10 feature films and presented numerous TV shows and introduced young me to the genius of Viv Stanshall. Since 1986, Robert and Toya have been happily collaborating together as husband and wife. And since lockdown, we've been able to glimpse some of that collaboration via their wonderful Sunday lunch films on YouTube. The duo performing together in their kitchen, playing unique and glorious cover versions of Enter Sandman, Echo Beach, Paranoid, Smells Like Teen Spirit and more giving received opinion a hefty kicking and accruing something in the region of 111 million viewers in the process. This September and October, they and the Toya Band will be bringing the Sunday lunch repertoire to a series of UK venues as Toya and Robert's Rock Party. Here to explain a bit more about the tour and then tell us about the two records they hold close to their hearts, Robert and Toya
1: or as i would say toya and robert oh yes
0: okay should i do it again that way round here to, exp- yeah. here to explain a bit more about the tour and then tell us about the two records they hold close to their hearts toya and robert
1: welcome hello hello andrew hello john hello
2: Shall we just go for it Hello, I'm Toy Wilcox. I'm Robert. And this is the Mojo Record Club.
0: Now, I think I should probably start with... It's an obvious question, but I think it needs to be asked. What sparked the idea for the original Sunday Lunch Messages back in May 2020?
2: Uh, Well, it was April. It actually began at the beginning of lockdown in 2020. And we both tangibly... We we just didn't know what to do without an audience. Yeah. We're touring musicians, and we often we always tour separately. So suddenly we were thrown together, and it's a life we've never had at that time in thirty five years of marriage. And luckily, we really like being together. But the oxygen of performing was making us feel bereft. And I thought, well, I'm gonna teach my husband how to dance, this is obviously an opportunity to do something we'd never managed to do before. And I taught him how to jive and I filmed it and it was 28 seconds and I posted it on social media. Hey, look at us, what we're doing in lockdown. And within five minutes, we had 100,000 replies from really extreme places. Bali, Manila, New Zealand, um, Orkney, uh, where else? Hong Kong, Singapore. And every one of these messages had the same thing in common. These were people who were alone and thanking us for brightening up their Sunday. And at that point, we realized that we should post every week. And we did. Very quickly, we realized that classic rock, classic heritage rock, was gonna get a very, very big audience because people share one thing on this planet and that is Heritage Rock is greatly loved by all age groups. And we adopted that as our signature. And
0: what do you, you've said sort of what you discovered about your audience in the process, but what did you discover about yourselves during this time and, and whilst you were doing the Sunday lunch broadcast? Because as you said, it was it th- you were thrown together, you'd always been on the road, you'd always been traveling, it to watch the broadcasts is to see a kind of an evolution of a relationship in a way your relationship with the audience but also your relationship with each other so what did you discover about you what would you say
1: my wife was always very insistent that the responsibility of performers is to lift people's spirits in hard times and uh, we were just discussing this morning at the beginning of our day, no one talks about COVID anymore. And yet to go back three years to the, the initial lockdown, on the street here in town, fear was palpable and tangible. And the only opportunity we had of seeing our neighbours was on a Thursday evening at six o'clock when everyone would come out on the street, distance, neighbors a hundred yards away, waving to each other. And we would applaud the NHS, and often an ambulance would drive by at the same time and acknowledge us waving. The fear was, the responses we had to our early postings, both publicly and privately, People's lives were breathtakingly hard in a way that perhaps we don't quite recall today. People banged up in studio apartments, unable to visit their mother, dying in hospital or to go to the... I mean, these were heartbreaking times. And when my wife said, look, we have to lift people's spirits, way to go. Mm. In terms of the music, do I like strapping on a guitar and rocking out to classic rock riffs that my professional life really never brought my way? I mean, Smoke on the Water, Paranoid, great riffs. Hey, King Crimson didn't play that repertoire. (laughs) And one of
0: the things, I mean, you're broadcasting from, am I right? Are you broadcasting from the kitchen? Yes. Yes, right. We should say this. You are broadcasting from the exact same kitchen that you do the Sunday lunch broadcasts from. What do you think, in terms of like you were pr- approaching these songs and you working on them together? Do you have favorites? Can you kind of, I mean, you're about to take the show on the road. Are there songs that you're looking forward to performing on stage together that you've kind of discovered?
2: Every song we're performing on this tour is a yeah. favorite. Um, we found that there was an eternal pool to pick from. The glorious history of rock and roll since 1960 is just extraordinary. So, everything we're playing in this Tour and it's an eight piece band, it's a full rock show. The music is precedent. Um, the, the kind of chemistry and the relation to Sunday lunch is between me and Robert. And in October, when we're playing, we're going to have projection that goes back to the history of the kitchen and the history of the posters. But paramount is that we are giving the best rock show. We can. And you've got an historically famous singer and a historically famous guitarist. And our pedigree um, together is over 100 years of experience. Do we have favorites? Yes. And one of my favorite is, exper- um, moments was I always do test films before i get robert involved so i would do i'll set up the kitchen i do the poster i do a test shoot on my own me singing a cappella to the camera so i know where to put robert and i know to tell robert what to expect well i dragged an exercise bike into the kitchen to sing um enter sandman and i had no idea of my husband's response <laughs> When I got him in and the full lights were on and I was in my exercise gear, and I said, this is what I want to do. He got very, very excited (laughs) and was very happy. But then when we posted it, it's our largest audience. I think it hit 10 million very, very quickly. And what's so satisfying about that was I did this to make myself laugh. I was laughing hysterically when I dragged that exercise bike into the kitchen because I thought this is so ridiculous, but it's something we all do. And it it caught on. So moments like that, when we do something... That we find really funny and then the world picks up on, like Robert and I in a tutu doing Swan Lake. Um, it's it's one of those lovely kind of osmosis that we know that there's going to be um, that it's going to gel. There's there's going to be a synchronicity between everyone who watches it and us. It, it's really great fun. In,
1: in terms of the, the repertoire, Toy and Robert will be playing. Um, it's very easy. I listen to this piece of music. Do I do I find myself reaching for my guitar, strapping it on, and rocking out? And if if that is my visceral response, yeah, this is this is worth playing.
0: And I think there seems to be, in terms of what Toy was saying about it being very th- therapeutic for us, it seems to be very very therapeutic for you. You've both talked in interview about how playing live seems to energise you both, give you kind of like a life force and a lift that you don't get from being in the studio?
2: Oh, God, I'm a live artist. Um, It's taken me years to... We now work within ears, and the biggest problem I ever had in a studio was wearing headphones, because my relationship of the timbre of my voice and how i sing and how i place notes is purely with a live room experience and when i was put into chapel studios to do sheep farming in barnet and headphones went on i didn't know how to respond how to perform so um steve james the producer put in live speakers and said don't wear headphones we're going to work in as in a live room it's always been a mammoth problem for me to understand how to listen and respond as a singer and it's only really in the recent years doing posh pop that i i you know i realized i have to sing with one headphone stuck on top of my head and the other just under my neck because I sing to resonance, I don't sing to sound, I feel sound. Um, So when I'm on stage, it's the only time I really feel like a musician because the response is visceral, it's physical, it's tangible, Everything that happens to me on stage is because I can feel the room, I can feel the audience. Everything is a very physical experience for me and an emotional experience. So I only ever feel kind of normal when I'm on stage singing live. How is it for you, Robert?
1: For me, there's three elements, the music, the musicians, and the audience. And any two of them, I don't know. But for the event to come to life, you need all three. An audience has responsibilities to the performance just as much as the musicians in my in my view but where the relationship is mediated by commerce, the relationship becomes more complex. However, for Toy and Robert, we're going on stage to rock out have fun and give people a good...
3: Time. So I was just going to ask something about that, because one of the things that I'm interested about prior to lockdown and when you were just sat at home talking about music and the functions of music and, and you were saying, Robert, that Toya's idea was always that music should uplift people. Do yeah. you ever have you ever had any debates or arguments about the purpose of music? Because I, I would suggest that perhaps some of your music hasn't always had that same distinct purpose in mind.
2: Mine certainly is very dark. I mean, Blue Meaning is a really dark right. album. Checking is so dark. I think the purpose that we're talking about was purely because of what COVID did right. to the world. And so many people were isolated and isolated in really extraordinary circumstance. Um, also, at the same time, we were we started to do something called celebrity video messaging, which neither of us never thought we would do. And we were having to... In, on a few occasions do interventions on suicides and a message would come in I'm, I'm going to kill myself I don't know what to do we would find ourselves trying to trace these people over Facebook book try to trace them through um, celebrity VM to do an intervention to just try and say stop wait you know can we just logically go through how you're feeling So when we were doing Sunday lunch, we realized the purpose of Sunday lunch went far beyond our egos. It went far beyond our experience, our personal experience of music and our personal experience as famous people. We suddenly felt as though we were communicators in a very different way. And that's where this message of music being uplifting came in.
1: For me, the responsibility of the artist is essentially to be true. Now, that goes, that goes deep and broad and also can be very uplifting and fun. In most of my professional life with King Crimson, you can argue that it's not all fun, but I would like to say that a lot of it is certainly true. So when my wife said, look, we have a responsibility and in the specific time, place, person and circumstance of COVID and lockdown, we have responsibility to lift people's spirits. Can I sign on to that? You betcha I can, completely. I was
0: showing my um, girlfriend your performance of Heroes this morning, um, which kind of seems to fit in with what you're saying about reaching for a, a song and a performance that reaches for a certain kind of truth as well as Uplift. And one of the things that she said, which kind of leads us into the album that you've brought in to discuss today, Toya, is that your voice is incredibly well-suited to singing Bowie. There's something in the range of it, the timbre of it, that seems to just kind of embrace the the same range that kind of Bowie has. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, maybe you can tell us, which album you've brought in to discuss today?
2: Now, this is not just about an album. It's about a time in Bowie's life, which meant we would either see him in in Ziggy Stardust or we wouldn't. So when Bowie released Space Oddity in 1969, the B-side was, um, I believe, the Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud, which I think is an extraordinary song. Then we get the album, um, Hunky Dory came out in 71, which I think is a really brilliant precursor to Ziggy Stardust. But when Bowie brought out The Man Who Sold the World, produced by Tony Visconti, engineered by Ken Scott, what I love about this album is Bowie was a broken man. And what I love about his journey on this album was he was searching for what he should be. He knew there was something missing in him as a person, as an artist, and he was searching for it. Having had world success with Space Oddity, he was knocked flat by trying to match that success. And he wrote The Man Who Sold the World. And Tony Visconti says that when this album was being recorded, Bowie had very little interest in the recording process, as if he was a broken man. Now, another reason why I've chosen this, because the next album that follows this, Hunky Dory, is an absolute masterpiece. The Man who sold the world was his least commercial success until Ziggy Stardust came out and then people like me um, who bought Ziggy Stardust bought the whole of his back catalogue and learned everything he ever did and the most precious thing for me about the man who sold the world is that if Bowie hadn't done this album hadn't written this album we'd never have got Hunky Dory and we would never have got Ziggy Stardust The original cover of The Man Who Sold the World was Bowie wearing a dress. Now, when this was released in America, a man in Texas held a gun to Bowie's head and said, if you wear a dress and have long wet hair around here, I'm going to shoot you. So they had to do an alternate cover, which was a cowboy at a bar. That's for the album. This is the pivotal moment that the David Bowie that we know for the rest of the 70s was created. He was a broken man. Now, if artists aren't allowed this journey, artists are being denied becoming great writers. And if record labels do not allow artists to have longevity, i.e. dumping them if they don't sell a million albums on their first release, we're never going to see more David Bowies. And I have picked Man Who Sold the World because this is a broken man searching through the pain of his artistry among his friends at Bromley, in his art centre, in his pod in Bromley, supportive group of friends exploring songwriting. The influences there from the Stones, the influences there from king crimson the influences are there from prog rock in every one of these songs on the man who sold the world and i just want to flag this album up because i actually think for every songwriting artist out there this is the album that says it's the step before the greatest leap it's a phenomenal album it's it's not quite bowie But it's the beginnings of Visconti, of Mick Ronson, uh, who's playing guitar on it, Mickey Woodmansey on drums. It's the beginning. And this is why I love this album so much.
0: I was actually going to play a bit from the title track, but I feel like because of what you've said about the nature of the record and about it capturing Bowie as an artist who's still searching and as a, as a broken man, I feel like we need to maybe play a more representative track. What track would you choose as perhaps the most representative track of, of what you've said?
2: I think Superman um, or the Superman yeah. um, because this was his exploration into Nish or Nishi. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Uh, And Bowie was a great reader. He absorbed so much information. He also absorbed the surrealist artist's work. Um, There's a picture I discovered of a play called Penelope from 1954, written by the surrealist artist Leonora Carrington, and the lead character on stage has the Ziggy Stardust makeup. So Bowie was a great searcher of culture.
0: OK, so let's hear a little bit of that. The Superman, written by David Bowie and originally released on The Man Who Sold the World on Mercury Records in 1970.
2: When all the world was very young, a mountain magic, a heavy hum, the Superman would walk in file. Nor sigh in solemn perverse serenity, wondrous things giant to life. I think it actually leads perfectly into a
0: question that you had about the album, John.
3: Yeah, it's. um what you just said to is very much good. It, it really chimes with something that I was thinking about when I was listening to the record for the first time in a while, actually, over the weekend. Um, because it occurred to me, it felt like in some ways it's Bowie's most provisional record. It feels quite, it, what you called broken. I I was thinking of, he's quite tentative. He's almost um, timid in places in, in what he's trying to do. And, And I thought that the way he doesn't sound entirely sure of himself, that he hasn't got his concept fully formed in the way that he normally did when he set about an album project, or he certainly seemed to, um, is kind of oddly humanising, really. It makes him more vulnerable and more fallible in quite an interesting way than we often see him.
2: I totally agree. I believe Bowie started all his songs on an acoustic guitar, so he he started all his songs in a romantic voice. Um, when Bowie took "Let's Dance" to Nall Rogers, it was on acoustic guitar, and Nall Rogers says, "Come on, let's let's put some rhythm and rock into this." Um, so Bowie I think was a very romantic human being and he, he kind of ambled along very brilliantly on his acoustic guitar within his um, field in Bromley and his associated musicians around him. But I think by adding Mick Ronson, I think Mick Ronson coming in with his extraordinary knowledge of music and arrangement um, and uh, the vision of his own guitar, I think Bowie was being taken on a new journey by Mick Ronson. And I think what Tony Visconti might have sensed on this, um, he felt Bowie was disinterested in the recording process, was actually Bowie trying to find a new voice. I think within the context of being a musician, this was a new voicing for him. And here he was in the studio with Visconti, who's utterly brilliant and always was brilliant for him, but with Mick Ronson as well. Um, This extraordinary human being from Hull, this this true 100% bloke with a guitar. And, and I actually think, you know, Bowie was genuinely finding a new voice and was genuinely confused by prog rock and the styles of writing within prog rock coming right through from Dylan going electric. The amount of lyrics on this album, you've got pages and pages of lyrics. You've got so many syllables in each line, in each verse verses here that have eight lines per verse, choruses mm. that have eight lines per chorus I mean there's a lot of words on this album, when you look at Ziggy Stardust, wham, bam thank you ma'am. he's stripping it down to a beautiful commerciality and an immediate emotional punch I believe what you're saying, John, is absolutely true. He's tentative. He doesn't know how to narrow it down. The idea is too big for him.
0: I, one of the things I'm interested in is what age would you have been when you heard this, toyer for the first time?
2: So this was 1970. I was
0: 12. And I've read interviews with you in the past where you've talked about your own... I'll use that word again because we've used it, your own tentative relationship with your own... Sexual identity and feeling that I don't fit these parameters that have been set up for me in 1970 or 1972 or 1973. And I wonder whether you also responded to that sense of a person searching for their identity and wondering who they are
2: totally totally so actually i want to correct i think i heard man who sold the world about 1971 72. so i I would have been closer to 13 14. which
0: is i mean that's the age isn't it where you kind of yeah
2: um the biggest problem for me is that me being born a woman has always been used against me it's been a pretty negative experience because i'm very very small And also, um, at that time, I had a physical disability, which I wasn't aware of, but everyone else may be very aware of it. So my being female at that time was very problematic for me. And as I developed into a teenager and punk came along, I realized I could erase my femaleness. I could eradicate it by um, non-gender dressing. Uh, I had a designer called Melissa Kaplan and her instruction was, show no flesh. I'm no gender. I don't want to be addressed by gender. It's a big problem for me because I associate it with abuse. and. That helped me a lot, but it wasn't so much to do with my sexuality. My sexuality was hopeless. I mean, I'm heterosexual. I love men, or you know, especially loved men before I was married, and but they didn't love me. I, I didn't. I didn't fit their feminine ideal. So this is why I rebelled against it, and why today, to some extent, I go to extremes to be very feminine and and attractive, um, because I, I'm. I'm having revenge on what nature gave me. But when I met my wonderful husband, who I truly believe is the first man who's ever fully appreciated what I was born with, uh, it it kind of changed radically because Robert has always loved absolutely every bit of me for what what is and what I am. But that whole rebellion against my gender was because it had always been a form of abuse from others towards me. Believe it or not, you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. I'm interested,
0: Robert, in terms of like what you hear when you hear this record and and what your relationship with it is and when you first would have heard it.
1: I have no relationship with this at all. This is what I was wondering, yeah. No, my relationship with Bowie was in 69, Space Odyssey, and then again with Ziggy. Yeah. and. I went to the Rainbow Theatre, North Finchley, with Roxy Music in support and saw the Iggy performance, which I said to David in person uh, in Berlin in 1977. I said that was one of the the best rock performances I have ever seen. Uh, I had a, a small person relationship with David in between the two. Um, But nevertheless, this is not music which is close to me. My attention was was elsewhere at the time, completely ramped with my own uh, musical life at the time. But Ziggy was remarkable. The whole Ziggy period really was something very special.
0: And what was your response then when you got that phone call from Eno about, Coming over and you know playing. I forget the exact phrase. Hairy man rock is it on?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, the phone call was at Waterside Plaza in my apartment. Hello, it's 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 Brian here. I'm working with David. Hang on, I'll pass you over. You you'll find all this. I've told this story a hundred times. Uh, and David said, "I'm here with Brian, and we." What he didn't quite say is we're stuck for a guitarist. I think he did say maybe we've been trying to play guitar and it hasn't worked out, but whatever. So I think Brian said to David, call Fripp. So David said, do you think you can play some hairy rock and roll guitar? And I said, well, I haven't really played guitar for three years because I've been in retreat, having managed to escape the music industry for the first time. But... Uh, If you're up for it, hey, sure. And then the first-class ticket arrived to fly Lufthansa (laughs) to Germany. So for me, turning up in Berlin, it was a liminal zone. I think David himself was in a liminal place, an in-between place. I was just returning from three years' retreat, essentially. I was in the middle the liminal zone has remarkable power it's neither outside it's not inside it's somewhere in between it's neither one nor the other and it has a phenomenal power essentially of possibility and potentiality it's a doorway to eternity and if we can put a hand through maybe something will come back into the time stream. And clearly for Bowie, it was the Berlin Trilogy. And for me, it was a return to playing hairy rock and roll guitar.
0: At the same time, though, you've almost described in a way how I hear the guitar that you play on Heroes. It seems to me that liminal is a much better description of it than hairy rock and roll
1: i would kind of agree with that yeah (laughs) i would agree with that
0: and i like Um, that i like the fact that you've also kind of in talking about that bowie album you've also kind of touched on a similarity with what Toya was saying about man who sold the world that sense of in betweenness of being between states and between stages and that having a particular
1: power yes Yeah, I agree completely. And it's astonishing to think now that at the time, RCA really didn't, well, they loathed. They loathed low. And I don't think they were very much more excited with Heroes. Uh, But it wasn't a hugely successful album at the time. But today, Heroes as a song, for me, it's increased in power it it's a defining song it's out there and it's accessible and the shame
2: is on the other side is
1: on the other side yeah it's a breathtaking statement and i love playing it may i say i love playing it now does it feel weird to
0: think because you it's a song that we hear. You go out to restaurants or cafes or bars, you hear heroes. And so you hear yourself. And I know that's not an uncommon thing for a a musician or a rock performer to hear themselves in public. But for such a defining
1: song Well I'll interject here if I may, Andrew, there's not a lot of King Crimson songs that are played on (laughs) speakers of restaurants and pubs at least the ones I go into. But the one that really made me go whoa was it the Olympics
3: yeah. yeah
1: and the one which made me go whoa again was fashion at the end of the Olympics yes
2: and heroes at the end of the London marathon which you didn't hear but it was fabulous I
3: didn't hear that can I ask Toya did you um did you ever get a chance to tell Bowie what he meant to you did you ever meet him
2: No, he never talked to me. I mean, I'd be standing next to Robert and Bowie would just look over my head. Um, I had one event where... Um, Bowie came very close to me. I was at Milton Keynes Bowl, but we was playing the main concert. We were allowed backstage. I was backstage watching from the wings, just me and Phil Daniels, and we sneaked off to the walkway, going to the dressing rooms to have a joint. (laughs) And Phil Daniels and I, there puffing away, and Bowie came and sat next to us. And he's just, he's not someone I was ever able to function normally in the presence of. And I said to Phil, I said, Phil, well, I've got to go, I've got to go, give him the joint, we're going to run. <laughs> I gave him the joint and ran. And this is before I met Robert. Um, and then we met Bowie a few times, who we were always in the same room as him, because Bowie asked you about joining Tim Machine, But I think at this point, Bowie realized I was just not going to be able to talk to him because he just had such a profound effect on me. Uh, I just became an absolute bloody idiot. So no, never.
3: Oh, sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't meet your heroes. I, I actively made that happen.
0: Yeah. I think talking about music that... You don't tend to hear in public. Robert, <laughs> the record you've chosen to talk about today is a.
1: The Shags!
0: <laughs> the philosophy,
1: philosophy of the World. The
0: Philosophy of the World by The Shags. Before we talk about this utterly unique record, we should probably play an extract for those who may not have encountered it before. This is My Pal Footfoot. Foot Composed by Dorothy Wiggin, arranged by the Shags, and originally released on Third World Records in
3: 1969.
0: When did you first encounter the music of the Shags? In
1: 1997, when I was G4 on the G3 tour of North America, uh, Joe Santriani, uh, backstage with the band around, uh, Joe Santriani said to me, "Do you know the Shags?" And I said, "No." Wait, they're on the beatbox. On came the shags and I didn't know it was fairly commonplace There were shag listening parties but anyway that was my introduction to the shags and it made an impression may I say and then when King Crimson were touring in the year 2000 I chose shag songs as King Crimson play on music now we were at the House of Blues in Uh, no, I think it was the Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas, and play on music was the Shags. And I went up into the back of the theatre to listen to the Shags. Uh, Well, generally, play on music, for any artist, I have found to be deeply unsympathetic to what they're playing. So where possible, I have chosen the play on music or created it myself on the spot in Saintskip's. So I figured that anyone listening listened to the Shags would not hold any expectations in terms of what King Crimson was likely to play. That's a reasonable assumption. I think we may all agree. <laughs> so there I was, up the back of the Hard Rock Cafe, and the Shags were playing. And there, there weren't many people that early on, but there were a couple over here on the right. And the first Shags came on, and there was a little discomfort, too, I think. Then the second, the second Shank song came on, and there—I think the man—there was even more discomfort here. And then the third song: "Oh no, not again!" We're off to the bar, and he took his girlfriend and headed out to the bar. Now that's my second Shank story, and the third is bringing it up into about i believe it was 2015 when the the final incarnation of king crimson were touring and we have to give some quick comment on the drumming in the Shakes. Mm. Maybe it's time. I'll do it for a little
0: pause. I'll give a bit of background on exactly who the Shags were, and then we can come back and you can fill us in on the, on the drumming. The Shags were Dorothy Betty and Helen Wiggin. They were three sisters from Fremont, New Hampshire, with, let's be honest about this, barely any musical ability. In 1969, they were taken out of school by their father, who brought them, bought them instruments and placed them in a recording studio. Why? Well, the story goes that when their father was a child, he'd been informed by his mother, who was a fortune teller, you will grow up and marry a wife with strawberry blonde hair. You will have two sons who I will never meet. Then you will have some daughters who will go on to form the greatest music group in the world. The first two predictions came true, but the Shags did not go on to form the greatest music group in the world. Largely How? largely it's because it's 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 <laughs> largely because they didn't want to play or practice or go along with their father's wishes. And so, personal opinion coming up here, the music they made is recalcitrant, chaotic, dislocated, random, unsettling. Back to Mr. Robert Fripp to, to inform us about the unique drumming on the shags album the philosophy of the, the World. music
1: of the shags came from a very deep place one which escapes normal considerations and forms of rational analysis i think it's also fair to say that they really didn't want to do it yeah they were bullied into it and forced into it by their father and after five years of being forced to rehearse they went into the studio and when he died at the age of 47 in 1975 they simply stopped now there is a power in the music which is not quite innocence because they were forced to do it but the music has a power which continues to speak to people but for a trained musician, it is almost impossible to access the musical thinking that gave rise to the music. Mm. It, has been, it is almost impossible, for example, for a drummer to play Helen's drum parts. And Gavin Harrison in Crimson would conventionally, if an uncle was demanded, which it usually was, we do a drum solo in Schizoid Men. And someone in the band, I believe it was Jacko Jaksic, dared Gavin to play an excerpt of Helen's drumming in the Shags during his drum solo in Schizoid Men. Gavin Harrison is a master drummer. Gavin goes beyond being an exceptional drummer. Gavin is a master drummer. He works in an entirely different league to most expert drummers. And there in the middle, as I'm looking out, enjoying Gavin's drum solo and skips around, diddly, bish, 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 diddly, 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 phenomenal playing. Suddenly, he breaks off and plays a few bars <laughs> of Helen Wiggins, Shag's drumming, before going back into willy, willy, bish, bish, bish. <laughs> the point of this is to. to Gavin Harrison is one of the very few people who can authentically play Helen Wiggins' drum work. Wow! Yes, very wow. The the Shags lasted the show in twenty seventeen. Oh. They uh, it was I believe it was with. Jesse Krakow's musicians, and he did his very best he could with all the musicians mm. who actually play the authentic parts. So respect, respect to them. It was Dorothy and who else? I think it was Dorothy and Betty were singing. Yeah. But we were actually playing their instruments. And that may be the final shag show it was also a musical in 2011 really yeah but it's very different it's going to be really a hollywood dead movie dead. as well it's
0: going to be a hollywood movie oh, yeah so the sh- i well, mean because be it's fast. such it's such a rich and dark tale isn't it that it's perfectly suited
1: i would love to be cast as a father
0: oh, oh, a i'd like older. to be the
2: mother <laughs>
1: yeah there you are how hard is it to play guitar like
0: dot wiggin Robert,
1: oh, you can't. Yeah, oh, it's it's beyond me. Mm. I'm not a player of the standard of Gavin Harrison. It is way beyond
3: me. I find it fascinating that the person who turned you onto it was Joe Satriani as well. There's, so there's yeah. kind of the, this this incredible world of virtuosic musicians playing this music, which is superficially antithetical to what they do. Or, or enjoying this music that is sim- superficial. Do you think there's a kind of a jealousy amongst people like you and Satriani that that they can tap into something by virtue of their lack of normal, you know, normal traditional ability that you can't tap into? Uh, I
1: would. There is a power in music that comes from beyond life itself, and it is most simply accessed either by the innocent who simply put have nothing to get in the way of a straight connection with the music itself and the other is the category which I've referred to Gavin as a master drummer the master musician acts in the assumption of innocence within a context of experience in other words For a master player they've gone beyond simply learning to play their instrument and music and there is a different relationship very directly forged with the music. So each time you walk on stage it is as if for the first time. You carry no history when you walk on stage. You present yourself fresh and available in the assumption of innocence to music for the first time in between of the problems.
2: Uh, What I would add to that, because having worked with orchestras, really, you know, big, big orchestras, where you sing by the bar, you relate to the bar, when you're told to pick up, you're told which bar to pick up. It's quite extraordinary to work with musicians who are so technically brilliant, their reading is brilliant, but they don't understand feel, mm. and when you look at the Rolling Stones, you, you look at Dylan, you you look at Neil Young, and you look at feel Bruce Springsteen. It's quite extraordinary to work with musicians who don't understand feel. Um, and what I see about the Shags is that okay, they were they weren't ideally placed within music, but they were creating something that a formal a formerly trained musician could ever create. Yeah. And it's still viable in the world. It's, it's very exciting. So
1: the question is, if there is a power in the music, which is why it endures. Where where does that power come from? And with the shags, I mean, the songs, they're kind of dark in there. Mm. It's, and then you actually learn the history that their father, who seems to have been a bit of a, control for it, force yeah. them to do it it's not a happy tale it's it's and protest
0: with, music but they're protesting the wow. act of playing
1: wow yeah well i think the conventional wisdom today is it was the debut of outsider music yeah it's absolutely your, yeah it's, it's certainly an alternative view into the alternative entry to the act of music
0: i have to ask Are you going to be playing my pal Foot Foot for the Sunday Lunch Live Tour?
2: I couldn't know. Come on, I'm going to do it.
0: (laughs) I saw, I saw Robert's eyes light up there, Toya.
1: It might happen. It it will be a challenge, but in order to learn how to play it, I'd have to stop learning everything else. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let's put it this way: Could I pick up a guitar and play it?
1: more likely than me do there
2: you go It'll happen.
1: guys
0: um this has been an absolute joy education and delight um you came on here to promote your sunday lunch live tour so before we say goodbye is there anything else that you want to add about the tour anything you want to say just let people know about
2: it's a party. It's a rock party. It's a full eight-piece band. We're there to perform music we all love and identify with. On this particular tour in October, we're going to use imagery in part of the production technical setup, so there'll be projections showing posters such as the poster behind Robert here, um, and and showing little clips of the actual Sunday lunches. But the whole premise of the tour is we're playing music that plays itself, yeah. and we want the audience to be as much a part of this show as we are we want them to dance we want them to sing we want them to whoop and cheer so it's a a rock party
0: yeah thank you thank you both guys it was it was amazing it was absolutely amazing thank you so much and the best of luck with the tour I hope it's as as much fun as it can possibly be
2: god I hope so
0: it will be for a certainty. <laughs> yes.
2: Thank you.
3: All right
0: guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. No. No, thank you. Bye. Oh, that was um that was fantastic, John. Um I'm going to take a little breather, but I'm going to ask you what new record have you been listening to this week?
3: Um I don't know where to begin after that, Andrew. <laughs> it's, like, it's um It's quite different. Um, The record I want to talk about this week is the new one by Caliphone called Villagers. I I feel like every time I come on and do this slot, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce the artist's name that we're doing. And it occurred to me, having been a fan of who I think are called Caliphone for the past twenty-five years, I started worrying that they might be called Caliphony this morning, actually. But I'm pretty sure.
0: Oh my god, I've never
3: even no. considered
0: that. I've always thought it has to be Caliphone, like kind of something that sounds like where are they? Are they but they're from they're Chicago. They're from Chicago. So, yeah. You
3: see, this is the kind yeah. of neurotic kind of response that I have yeah. to doing podcasts at this point. Anyway, like I yeah. say, they're from, they're they've been going for a quarter of a century now, and they they hinge around a guy called Tim Rattilli who spent the 90s in an excellent uh, band called Red Red Meat who was they probably i guess you'd categorize them as grunge blues really they were a really interesting band on sub pop made some a great record called Bunnies Gets Paid uh, Califone is slightly different and they represent a sort of music that is one of my favorite types i think which is when artists take what is notionally kind of roots music folksy type of traditional song and make experimental capital out of it that they push it into quite strange places using improvisation, digital interference kind of musicianly tactics from a world which is normally perceived as very different to the authenticity of roots music basically. And that's kind of what Rutile and Califone do. And that's what they do on this new record, Villagers, which is a great place to start, I think, if you've never heard them before. And also a place that I think some people who might not be aware of Califone before will be in a little way familiar with, in that it's it's really quite a similar place that they've been working on for a very long time to where Wilco got to around Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And it's not. This isn't um, a revelation on my part, I have to say. This is a very commonly held view by people who like Califone and also a, a bit of a kind of a grudge that people who like Califone have sometimes in that they can't quite understand why Wilco broke so big with the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot when Califone were doing it before them. A bunch of records where they've been circling this this idea for a very long time, and this is... Like I say, this is as good a place as any to start your investigations, really.
0: Maybe Wilco are an easier band to ask for in the record shop because it, you know how to pronounce their name. Maybe it's just thousands of people terrified of uh, getting the pronunciation of their name wrong.
3: Or maybe I'm the first person that's ever <laughs> yes, worried about we'll, we'll getting never the, know. Their, the pronunciation wrong. Yeah. Okay, let's listen to a track. right of,
0: in, usual address. Let's listen to a track off the new album. This is The Spectral. Comic Weird Drifting Oxeye written by Tim Rattilli and released on Jealous Butcher Records <laughs> As afraid of you, as you are. I don't think, John, that as I've ever knowingly listened to a Caliphone record. And I like this. But you're right. It does sound like some parallel universe Wilco LP to me, which will doubtless infuriate all the Caliphone listeners out there. But I like, but I also like the kind of subtle buzzing textures that are going on just below the surface of the songs. So yes, it kind of, to me, it felt like finding a lost cache of, you know, Wilco kind of tapes from from a mirror universe almost, you know, kind of a world that exists through the mirror, through, through the looking glass. Um, some yeah. elements are missing, some elements are replaced, some elements have been made weird. So it's kind of like the the experience is, was quite disorientating in for for someone who's who doesn't know them and only has that Wilco reference the experience of listening to them was quite disorientating in a really pleasant way.
3: Yeah, I mean I think I think I should say I mean they're extremely subtle. Yeah. And and even and even at their most um kind of uh frictional and sort of uh, strung out on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, I suppose there are still conventional hooks yeah. on, this, right, on that record, whereas whereas California do dial them back. In that, fair, well, that's honestly. what I mean and about it, uh,
0: it's like kind of, it's like some elements have been removed or, you know, when you look at kind of a, a photo and one, you know, the magenta hasn't been put in. So one, you know, yeah, one, yeah. one strip of colour is missing from the photo. But it kind of, but in doing that, it makes the photo weird. It adds a kind of a curious kind of magic to it, I think.
3: Yeah, there's this kind of decayed air to yeah. it as well. But but having said all that, the the structure of the songs is still rigorous. Yeah. It's like it's a, the integrity of the melodies is still there. Yeah. It's not broken up to the point of of kind of chaos. No, absolutely not. It's it's very meticulously precisely done it's a bit it's a bit like Sparkle Horse yeah that's that was the other thing
0: that reminded me
3: of yeah but there's definitely you know there's a there's a what is wrong with this
0: picture quality to it you know where just a few elements uh have been altered to make it strange but as you say nothing so overt as to make it discordant but you know just enough to make it a little lynchian you know a little kind of a curious view of kind of America you know the American folk world I liked it Talking of lynching. Oh, yes. My record of the week. Well, it isn't really new. It's the soundtrack to Bob Dylan's 2021 concert film, Shadow Kingdom. And, well, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's kind of a purposefully stylized, warm, poignant, melodic, richly textured, but strange run through of kind of classic Dylan tracks this is the first track to be released from the record. It's, the, it's a wonkily groovesome Bayou country version of 1971's Dylan and Leon Russell collaboration, Watching the River Flow, released on Columbia Records. What's the matter with me? Don't have much to say Can I sneak into the window
3: it's away. only available for about 48 hours. When was it? 2021 or whenever, when it was, a, when it was a live stream as yes. such. And um, it, it's uh, I must confess, I didn't do any kind of sneaky, illegal sound grabs or anything from it. So I hadn't heard yeah. it since. And and so it, it's funny, Robert, talking about liminal zones hmm. earlier and that kind of thing, because this record kind of uh, operated in a liminal zone. And it there was a very curious kind of game that Dylan appeared to be playing by leave it, leaving it hidden yes. again, that, that it came and went, that, that it wasn't like the, a lot of those ad hoc, live streams that we saw um dur- during lockdowns and that kind of thing where um they they were very they were, they were in people's kitchens you know and that kind of thing it was it was a very meticulously crafted and and poised piece of art yeah. that felt like it had enduring resonance but then that enduring nature of it was withdrawn from us instantly yeah
0: it's kind of so and also it was it's presented as a live concert but it's it's the most kind of meticulously crafted (laughs) and created performance and construct. You know, it's kind of, it is his voice, the sound of the instruments. There's something very directed about the whole thing. I mean, obviously that was more apparent when you watch the live stream. And I'm, I'm writing thinking that when the album gets released, you'll also be able to buy the life i think so i'm i'm a bit confused
3: about this because yeah. the, the 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 message the, there's a, quite a few confusing things about mm. this as per dylan and one, one of the things i, I was reviewing it for Mojo and um i asked who the musicians were cause i thought the credits might be quite mm. useful and i couldn't get the credits and i was told that they weren't going to appear on the record they'll probably appear on the record yeah but of course at the end of the live stream there were credits there were musicians credited so it's kind of like so were they actually the people playing on the record or were they the people pretending to be the band yeah are they actors miming to the music who who actually plays on this record you know i think it's the musicians listed on the film but you don't know it all exists in this kind of parallel universe shadow Shadow kingdom shadow kingdom there you go clever that that could work I think we've worked out a
0: marketing yes yeah Um, but but that's uh, exactly um, the reason I love it and because it kind of it it refuses to be kind of to fit again you know classic Dylan but it refuses to fit in a particular category Mm. it refuses to be defined but one of the things that I noticed about it removed from that very kind of like eerie kind of you know French bar kind of overtly stylized setting in which the performances you kind of notice just how utterly gorgeous
3: um it's brilliant yeah yeah and it's also even though there's no drums and it doesn't have that kind of roadhouse rumble of of like the the recent live shows the um rough and rowdy where yeah. it 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 still has that slightly uncanny air yeah and it's kind of the sub the subtitle of the um of the live stream was uh, the early songs of Bob Dylan. Yes. Which is, which is it's hilarious. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think some people, especially the fact that what was it you wanted appeared on it, which was released in 1989. Yeah. That doesn't seem so early, but of course, if you do the math, yes, actually it's from the first half of his career. And I think it's kind of like almost, there's a sense with rough and rowdy ways
0: and shadow kingdom that there's almost a sense in which Dylan is preparing to disappear. But kind of creating these, you know, these these records, these texts that we've talked about the liminal today constantly with Bowie, with um, you know, with the Shags, with you know, with Robert's music and everything. And again, it's like kind of Bowie is preparing to exist within the liminal to kind of escape categories, but also kind of to prepare for the fact that a terrible thing to say to a Mojo editor that there may be a time when he's not here.
3: Yeah, I will. Um, yeah, let's 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 gloss over. Yeah, that. maybe I maybe think, yeah maybe the, we'll the, maybe the, that
0: yeah. comes out of the, that doesn't stay in the edit. Sorry,
3: <laughs> maybe it stays yeah. in, but no, it's fine. Um, but but there is a but just in that in that kind of tone that we should say that there is um there is what appears to be a new Dylan tune on there yeah. as well. There's a song called or an instrumental called Sierra's Theme at the end, which is which is a, a kind of a trip into the sunset, isn't it? It's the end credits of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid again kind of thing. There's something very beautiful desert kind of vibe to it, which is just a great way to end a record. I think there is the sense...
0: The thing I love about this album and the thing that I love about Rough and Rowdy Ways is that Dylan himself isn't preparing to go anywhere, but the the world in which he occupies doesn't just exist within the solid and the real it exists within the mythic and the dreamlike
2: hello i'm toya and you've been listening to the mojo record club i bet you didn't know that did you
1: i'm robert you've been listening to the mojo record club
2: and he's been listening to me
0: you have been listening to toya wilcox robert fripp john mulvey and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. We hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode.
1: Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club with
2: Toya and
1: me, Robert.
0: something in 4-4 four, four time.